Our text tonight is verses 13 through 17 in 1 Peter 1. And we've been seeing how that Peter has been writing to these believers under intense persecution spread throughout the Roman world. And he's been reminding them of the greatness of the salvation that they have in the Lord Jesus. That they have been chosen by God, that they have been saved by the Lord, and that they will be kept through all the trials that they face, and that they are to fix their eyes on what is ahead. And it's interesting that after speaking of the wonder of this great salvation, the greatest gift that could ever be given, Peter then turns to look at what the response of the believer should be. Jesus said, to whom much is given, much is required. And that's certainly true for us, friends, if we are the Lord's. And if you remember last time, we saw how Peter, under the inspiration of the Spirit, brought the reality of the greatness of this salvation from different viewpoints. And so the Old Testament prophets who spoke of the grace that would come in Jesus Christ, his sufferings and the glories that would follow, it was their heart to see these things. And we saw that this salvation was the theme of the Holy Spirit's inspiration, how he moved and guided and inspired concerning this great deliverance that would come in the Saviour. And then the gospel proclamation itself, and Jesus and him crucified, the focus of the preaching of the apostles and the New Testament preachers, and the preaching of the truth for the saving of Jew and Gentile in this gospel time. And then also the angels longing to know more of the wonder of it all, even though they could never experience it for themselves, but to know more so that they could glorify God more for what he had done in saving sinners like us. And so with all that in mind, in verse 13, Peter moves from drawing out the amazing sense of these great truths of the gospel to now commanding the Lord's people on how they should live. Salvation described, and now the attention is to the believer's responsibility. How should we then live in the light of the privileges that we have received? Well, a number of things just to highlight for you this evening. And the first is, we should live with a fixed hope. We need to fix our hope. Verse 13, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, rest your hope, fix your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the first command that Peter comes to these believers with. As a result of this privilege of being chosen by God, saved by God, we now must fix our hope fully upon him. And it's not just a a vague instruction either. It's a call to a determined act of the will, a decisive action. He says, you've been saved, now make sure you rest your hope in the right place. Live consciously in that hope. You know, hope is a great thing. You think of 1 Corinthians 13. Hope is one of the three things that will endure alongside faith and love. But if we're honest, and we ask ourselves, I ask myself, how much attention do we pay to pursuing hope? To live in hope. And maybe one of the reasons is, friends, is that too often we get so preoccupied with life now. But here, Peter is saying to the believer, fix your hope. Fix your hope. 
Well, we need to ask them, well, what is hope? Well, one explains it is the Christian's attitude to the future. It's the same substance as faith. It is to believe God. It is to trust God. Faith is all about believing God in the present. Hope believes God for the future. Faith takes God at his word, believes what he has said and done. Hope believes the promises of God for the future. And so both are trusting the Lord. Faith, believing God for what he has done, and hope, believing God for what he will do. And Peter says that the believer is to live believing God for the future, to live in anticipation of that fulfillment of the future promises that God has given. And friends, we owe that to the Lord. We owe it to him to rest our hope fully upon the grace that he has promised and to do that unreservedly. To not doubt the one that has saved us, that he will also keep us. It means to not be half-hearted, but to have a sure confidence in our Savior. And we could say that we, we owe God that hope. We should live like that because he is great. He is gracious. He has blessed us beyond measure. He has shown that he is mighty to save, that he is able to deliver and forgive our sins. He has provided everything for us in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who was our perfect substitute who died and rose to save us, the God who has saved us purely because of sovereign grace and mercy. He is worthy of our total trust for the future. You know, he has shown himself faithful in every way. And we have to live believing that. You know, we sang, great is thy faithfulness. We sing the words, but do we believe God for that faithfulness? Do we trust him that he will do all that he has promised to do? We are to live in hope of that eternal future, inheritance and glory. It should characterize our lives. And so Paul is calling the believers to hope, even in the fires of persecution. But not just because it's good for us in terms of helping us through and keeping perspective. He is calling us to this hope because it brings God glory. And it ascribes to him that which he is due. God is glorified when we trust him. God is glorified when we have that confidence in him and in his word. When we look to his faithfulness, it honors him when we affirm that God is truth and that he keeps his word and keeps his promises. God is glorified, friends, when we believe him. It is so simple. God is glorified when we hope in his future promises. And the God who has given us such a great salvation is worthy of our hope. And I hope to be fixed fully upon him and the grace that he has promised. And so I ask you, what are we fixing our hope on? What is our pursuing of hope like in our lives? And then if you look at the second part of verse 13, Peter adds something more. He says, rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So this, this fixed hope this resting of our hope is to be on the grace that is to be given to us when Jesus comes again. To live seriously in the light of Jesus coming again. 
So we're to live looking to that day when Christ will come to reward and glorify his people when that redemptive work he has begun will be completed in us. You know, Paul calls it the redemption of our body, the glorious manifestation of the children of God in Romans. Or as John says, it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he comes, we will be made like him, for we shall see him as he is. And so we're to live with that hope in view. Think of Titus 2. We should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the, the first responsibility that we have as those who have received this gift of salvation, to look and rest our hope fully upon that grace that is to come. The question is, friends, and I ask myself and I ask you, do we really fix our hope on that? Do we really live like that? And notice that, that Peter doesn't say to fix our attention on the events of his coming or the glory to come, but the grace that will be brought to us. I don't know if you've ever thought about why he emphasizes that. Well, when we're saved and brought to faith in Christ, it's all of God's grace. When Jesus comes again, when he finishes that work in us and glorifies us, that, that final fulfillment, friends, it will be all of God's grace. That is so important for us to remember. Do we ever fall into the trap of thinking that God will give us this final glory because of how we have lived our Christian lives? Or do we think Christ will, will give us what we've earned by, by our spirituality and, and then we'll be worthy? We must never think that. When we first received this salvation, it was purely God's grace. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. It was a gift. And so it will be in this great unveiling, this unmerited blessing, undeserved kindness, amazing grace, when Jesus comes again. As one explains, we will no more deserve our home in heaven than we deserve our place in the church. We will no more deserve the eternal weight of glory than we deserve the indwelling spirit of glory. We will no more deserve sinless perfection of body and soul forever than we deserve forgiveness of sin in this body and soul. We will no more deserve unhindered, unbroken, sweet, intimate communion with the living Lord than we deserve to be able to pray and speak with him now. It is grace, and it will always be grace. And we must never forget that. We can't save ourselves. We can't keep our safe self. We can't do anything that will make us right for that last day. It is all of grace. And believer, we have to live in anticipation of that fullness of grace and rest our hope on it because it glorifies God. And indeed, he is worthy of our trust. Let me ask you again, are you amazed at the grace of God in your life? Are you quickened to those things? Do you, does it stir you and move you still? Or have you become so complacent about it? To think about the fact that God set his love upon you and chose you before the foundation of the world, decided to be gracious to you because of his sovereign pleasure and purpose, poured out his grace upon you in time, forgave all your sins, forgave them all in his son. 
and has given you the Holy Spirit to live in you, given you the Word of God to be part of the family of God and fellowship and seeing and knowing the, the love of God in your life, grace upon grace upon grace on you. And the most wonderful thing we can ever experience, this grace lavished upon us, and it is amazing because there is so much more to come. And so we mustn't doubt God for this future grace. We must trust him. It is certain and sure in Christ. And we keep looking for grace, more grace, future grace, fullness of grace in the eternal inheritance that we have been promised and which glorifies his name. And you say, well, that's fine. But how do you do it? How do you live like that? Well, he tells us. He says, gird up the loins of your mind. Well, what does that mean? Well, to gird up means to tie something that is loose. We've considered before how it's often used in ancient times of gathering up a loose robe to be able to move and respond quickly. You'd gather it up and tuck it in so you could run away. It's to be ready to move quickly. And so when you rest your hope on that future grace, it is really to be ready to go at any moment. Nothing here holds you to the point of hindering you. Now, he's not saying, you know, not to live your life here for his glory. He's not saying that or, or just to sit out on life and just wait for glory. No, he's not saying that. He's saying, make sure your priorities are right. Get your mind in the right place. You know, too often, particularly in this day and age, you hear, particularly in Christian circles, of the need to sort of disengage your mind and, and open your heart. But here we're told that actually the more we understand the truth of God, the more our minds and hearts are engaged, the more we will be gripped by the truth in our hearts, our lives will be changed. And so we are to go about the things that the Lord has for us to declutter all the hindrances of the world which cause your walk with the Lord to stumble, to be serious about your Christian living for the glory of God in the light of eternity. You know, it's like when Paul is speaking about the armor of God in Ephesians 6 and uh, the belt of truth. And again, the purpose there is to, to gather in the loose garments so that you're ready for battle that you're able to maneuver and the believer being aware of the spiritual warfare that he's in. And so Peter says here to do that with your mind, to have the right spiritual attitude, to be intentional about bringing our thoughts captive to Christ and the grace coming in his return. And if we're honest, we find it hard. We struggle with it. And there are times when we're so taken up with the world that, you know, maybe even the prospect of Christ coming again, we think, well, well, Lord, you know, if you could just leave it a bit because we've got all these plans in place and I'd really like to do this and I'd like to do this and, you know, I've got this that I want to do and so, you know, please, you know, not just not yet. We need to be serious to get those things tied together, to set our affections on those things above. And so we need to gird up the loins of our mind. And then he says, not only that, but to be sober. And that is to be spiritually steadfast. It's that, that clarity of mind to be in control of your priorities, a, a discipline of heart and mind, a balanced biblical view of the world. It means to not be so drunk with the world, but alert to its reality. 
And it's a contrast to the way the world is and the way that people live in it. He says, no, you need to be aware of these things. Don't be intoxicated by the world. You know, friends, surely when we think on what God has given to us in our salvation, we should be living in anticipation of being with him in the grace to come. Or are we just so familiar and so complacent that these things really don't move us? You know, if we knew that Jesus was coming tomorrow, I wonder, would it really disrupt our plans? Have we become so worldly in our affections, like it so much here, that we would prefer more time because we've got plans, maybe some trip coming up or a new car or improvement, some event or whatever? We often live life like that. And we don't think so much about Jesus coming again. And we play at these things. You know, but these persecuted brethren, and no doubt for many of our persecuted brethren around the world, they live with these things in view so acutely. Peter says we need to be determined in battling to get the focus right. If we've lost that sense of wonder, that desire for closeness with Christ and that desire for heaven, then we need to ask ourselves, are we really loving his appearing? Our minds are not girded as they should be. We've not fixed our hope, and so we need to ask him for help. Lord, please help me to get my priorities right again. I wonder, do you not think that it grieves his heart when our affections are set so much on other things and not on him? Do you not think it grieves him when we don't live in anticipation of, of being with him? You know, Paul exhorts the believer, fix your hope. Realize the greatness of this salvation. Fix your hope on Christ. And then the second responsibility is to pursue holiness. Verses 14 to 16. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. Hope isn't detached from holiness. They go hand in hand. In fact, hope should produce holiness. Think of 1 John 3. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. If we live in that hope, then we will pursue holiness. And Peter says we must be holy. If you look at that phrase, obedient children, it's an interesting one because obedience is a characteristic of the child of God. Unbelievers, Ephesians 2, are children of disobedience. It is their nature. Whereas the believer has been given a new nature and their desire is to obey the Lord and to please him. And so obedience should be the pattern of the believer's life. It is something given to us in our election. And Paul speaks about how the believer is ordained to good works. You read that in Ephesians 2 as well. Prepared beforehand. It's how we should live. Obedience to God or obedience to his word. That leads to a pursuit of holiness. And it's the, the flowing out of a heart that loves the Lord. You know, it's not a, a, a driving duty and, you know, a, a, a reluctant willingness. You know, those, those things are not there. It should be the overflow of a heart of love. Love for God. And there are times when we stumble. 
but obedience is the overarching pattern, the outworking of the new nature. And so Peter says, fix your hope, be obedient, simply to pursue those things which are helpful and good, separate from defilement, pursuing what is pleasing to a holy God. Be like the one whose image you bear. Think of Ephesians 5. Therefore be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us. You say, well, that's fine, but how do we do it? Well, again, he tells us, verse 14, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance. Do you know, it's really simple, but we find it so hard, don't we? Don't live and act like you used to before you were saved. That's what he's saying. Don't be fashioned by the world, but be conformed to Christ. It's the same point in Romans 12. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You know, when holiness is a priority in your life, you will be serious about breaking with those things that you know hinder your walk with Jesus. The former lusts that Peter speaks of are those passionate desires, those sensuous impulses that propel those in the world. It's what they live for in the world. 1 Thessalonians 4, each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. In Ephesians 4, he he speaks too of an empty religious zeal for God amongst the Jews, not according to knowledge. They were ignorant. They were religious, but they didn't know God. So whether Jew or Gentile, he's talking about don't live the way you used to live before you were saved. You've been transformed. God has given you this new nature. You're a child of obedience. It's all of grace. And so live like it. And this new nature is so different. It desires holiness, those things that please the Lord. Think of Colossians 3. But now you yourselves are to put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Don't lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. There's a break with what has gone before. And you know, when you think about the standard that he has here, look at verse 15. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Is that not staggering, friends? Like the holy one who called you, be holy. Peter is saying, don't live like you used to live. Live like the one who saved you. And we can only do that in his strength. You know, God is the standard. Think of 1 Samuel 2, 2. No one is holy like the Lord. Matthew 5. Therefore, Jesus says, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. He's called us to this. This effectual call, a result of his sovereign work, the God who called you to salvation, called you to be a child of obedience, calls you to be holy. Ephesians 1. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him. And Peter adds something else here. He says, verse 16, 
because it is written, be holy for I am holy. You know, why should we do this? Peter says, because it is written and commanded in the word of God. And you say, well, where do we find that in the Bible apart from here? Well, Peter's actually referring back to Leviticus. And if you were to read through Leviticus, you'll find this emphasis for God's people throughout. They are to be holy because they belong to God. Leviticus 11.44, God is giving his laws to his people in the Old Testament and he says, For I am the Lord your God, you shall therefore consecrate yourselves and you shall be holy, for I am holy. And in fact in Leviticus 11.45, I am the Lord who brings you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. In other words, God says, I have delivered you, and as my people, you are to be holy for the glory of my name. You know, you can read through Leviticus 18. The Lord God is laying down all his laws for the people under the old covenant. So many laws. Why should they obey? Each time the emphasis is, because I am the Lord your God. The laws covered so many things, the requirements not to engage in abominable practices because God is holy and as their God, his people, they should also be holy. Leviticus 19, speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And you know, again, so many different stipulations and ideas. Why should they do this? I am the Lord your God. Leviticus 20, consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. And again and again and again, you see that repeated. The compelling reason for the people to obey is because the holy God was their God. And as his people, they should live like that. Peter takes that and he applies it to new covenant believers. What is the compelling reason why we should live holy? Because God in his grace has saved us. And he is our God. We are his people. We have been brought to know him through his son, Jesus Christ, the holy and the just. He has saved us. He has delivered us. We belong to him. We owe him everything. We love him. We love him because he first loved us. And so surely we should love him enough to be holy as he is holy. We shouldn't live like this because of pressure of expectation or pressure from others or fear of judgment. We should want to be holy because the God who has saved us and loved us and embraced us and plucked us from the pit and identified us with us in grace, sent his son, is holy, and has called us to holiness. That's our responsibility. Fix our hope, pursue holiness, and then as we finish, to honour God. Verse 17, if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. The fear that Peter speaks of here is a reverence, it's awe, it's respect, it's honour. We are to live life honouring the Lord with a right reverence and holy awe. 
And he says, look, if you call God your father, that intimate term, Abba Father, that close, real, loving relationship given by grace, if we call God our father, we should also be very aware of the glory and the majesty of the one to whom we come. If we are so close to God, if we know him, if we call him Father, then we must also know that we call on the one who impartially judges each man's work and conduct, and so we should be careful how we live. We live before his face. I wonder if you have that desire in your life to honor the Lord, to respect his holiness. You know, we can at times rush into his presence and cry out, Father, and we have that access, but sometimes we forget that the one that we are speaking with is also the one who will judge without partiality. And he will deal with his children. You know, and if necessary, he will discipline us when we are pursuing a wrong path and pursuing sin. So we must never forget the one to whom we go in prayer. And yes, we can draw near. Yes, there is that intimacy, but he is still a great God of heaven. And the more the believer knows God, the greater he is aware of God's holiness and majesty. And so he fears the Lord in the right sense. You know, the more the believer truly fears the Lord, they, they fear to offend him because they want to honor him. It's not a fear in terms of condemnation. It's a fear in sense of giving God the reverence and the respect that he is due. So friends, we have been saved. If we're believers tonight, we have been saved. We have been delivered. And we have this privilege of knowing God, living for his glory. And our responsibility is to trust him it is to pursue holiness and it is to honor him. You and I have been bought with a price. We have been redeemed with the precious blood of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus. And when we think on the great cost of that salvation, the blessings that we have been given, the inheritance that we have been promised, the grace bestowed, surely we owe him our hope to live pleasing to him as those who bear his name, and to honor him in our approach. You know, we can only live like that with his help and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And if we long for these things, if we want to know more of them, if they are in any way true in us, we can know that the one who has given us that will also strengthen us to live like that. And so I pray this night that it will be our heart cry that he will be gracious to us that we might rightly respond to this great salvation which we have been given in Jesus. We have a wonderful future, a wonderful hope, and may it be that we live in the light of it and all to the glory of his name. Amen.